So tonight, um, slightly different story. So we're really beginning this series after the climate change uh, panel discussion around sustainable development goals. But I really want to challenge that enormous effort about sustainable development and say, for what purpose? Why, why are we doing this? Why are we getting governments to sign up to things, to measure things and so forth? And so I'm more and more coming to the conclusion that unless you ask why we're doing it all, it's pretty much, I'm not saying it's a pointless exercise, but it's an enormous investment and without necessarily the guarantee of what we're after. So I'm going to sort of put up a proposition to you this evening, and I hope that you'll, uh, this is slightly a participatory evening, okay, so it's not just sit still. So I'm going to talk about communities, though, as a mechanism, a way of bringing really into the spotlight why do we care about sustainable development. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some really new research, but put it into a context of something that's rather old, and that's twinning. So the history of twinning. I don't know how many of you actually know, if you live in a village or a town, who your twin is. Does it, a show of hands, does, do people know who your twin is? Ah, one person does. So where, where do you live, sir? Uh, well, I live in Richmond. In Richmond. And I'm from Richmond, Virginia. Ah, you're, you're one of those kinds of twins. Ah, right, okay, we have all kinds of twinning, right? So yeah, there's the name twinning, and there's a few others which I'll, I will come to. Um, it's been going for quite a long time, as you can see. First one in 836, as recorded. Some of them have really bizarre stories behind them. Um, but in all intents and purposes, the one that was uh, first documented here in the UK was between Keeley West in Yorkshire and with two towns in France, Suresna and Puteaux. But after the Second World War, twinning really took off. And it was an idea of, obviously, peace building, a kind of reconciliation, a way of coming together, but also trying to foster friendship and looking at identity and so on. So it was, it was really encouraged. And then, obviously, it, we, we saw a lot of uh, interactions. Monies were set aside. After, after 1989, there was actually a fund that the European Union put to one side. And a typical amount of expenditure would be something like, I don't know, $39,000, $40,000 is on average how much towns were spending sending delegations backwards and forwards. And if you read some of the interviews that people have given as to why you know, twinning is a, is, a, is a good thing or was a good thing if, if they were involved in it, it was almost entirely about friendships. Yes, there were discussions around trade if you were a slightly larger town or city, but it was really about friendships. And friendships come and go, but nevertheless, the twinning was there. So one would actually have to say that maybe it's a concept past its sell date. But just some very interesting, weird things on the journey of twinning. So you had, well, the Richmond Richmond, there are many of those where people you know, looked at the same name and they, they became twins. There was also, I love this one, which is welcome to dull paired with boring. So that was, that was they clearly sought each other out, these two communities. Um, the one on the bottom is slightly, uh, well, how can I say, dark. Um, these are the twins living in South America as a result of the twinning experiments undertaken by the Nazis. So it's kind of really strange. This is a twinned town. But th there are all sorts of reasons why twinning has occurred. Have they been successful? Well, it's an interesting thing. When you look at these wordles, when you see interviews 
of different communities around the world and what they have thought about twinning, it's quite interesting how different their perceptions are. So if we look at the European Union, you see lots of things about uh, opportunity, participation, ideas, peace, uh, and so forth. When you look in Africa, um, it's really quite interesting because it turns out that a lot of the reasons of twinning, and mostly these are twinning between very close and proximate places, it's about giving each other information about events that are going to occur. So forecast decisions, um, you know, what's going to happen and so forth. So that was quite interesting. Uh, over in Latin America, um, quite a different kind of picture was emerging. And then you had um, all kinds of responses that were to do with communities, sporting schools and so on. And these are the names that occur in, in sort of throughout history about what brings them together. So sister cities stands for itself, partner towns, very, very kind of normal things, twin towns. Then there's, you know, brotherhood, the brotherhood, as in fraternization and sworn brothers between Russian cities. So that gets deeper and deeper. And then, of course, the friendship cities. Now, it's quite clear that sometimes cities and towns fall out with each other. And there are quite a lot of examples of that. Um, so you can hear about, uh, for example, after long deliberation, certain towns in Japan and North Korea decided to sort of cut all ties, and so therefore all the twinning goes. So these things <coughs> excuse me, can come and go, but nevertheless, we can count approximately, in terms of officially being recorded, somewhere in the region of between 60 and 65,000 towns and communities are today considered to be twins. All right? So it's a lot, of, a lot of people. So if you add all of that up. But it's not as many as you would expect. So some sociologists and anthropologists have been looking at what the long-term benefits have been. And in the end, they've essentially said the people who benefited the most from twinning were young people. So let, let's kind of leave that on the table, because I want to come back to that when we think about, is there a future for the way in which we build communities globally, sustainable communities? And could twinning be something that we would like to go back and to revisit? So the Carnegie UK Trust, which is, I'm sure, known to, to some of you at least, decided to give it a go. And so four or five years ago, they put together, out of their Livable Towns program, an idea of pairing up different towns across the United Kingdom. And there was a real reason for this, because what they found was particularly for cities and towns where there was a lot of inequality, a lot of poverty, many, many, many of the problems were the same. And the idea was to bring these 10 towns together and actually see if collectively they were able to improve the quality of life, improve prosperity, and actually change the direction and the pathway of many of these uh, smaller communities. So some of them, I'm sure you would recognize the name, have sort of got left behind in the kind of economic development, the social developments that have been going on in the United Kingdom. Well, it's very, very interesting because when you now read the reports from these towns, you actually see that they are extremely <coughs> effective. They are, in a sense, challenging the very labels that they had when they were put on the table as individual towns. And collectively, you can see that there's direct exchanges between them, both employment terms, but also people. So it's not just the mayors, it's actually whole parts of the town exchanging ideas. So there's clearly something in it. 
very, very little investment, more a matter of actually people being able to see and to work with each other. And I'll come back to how uh, the, kinds of, the kinds of things that these towns are now aspiring to, given where they were just three or four years ago. So the word that comes up again and again throughout all of these conversations beyond sustainable development is a kind of idea of prosperity. And the question really remains with most economists is to, when you're building a sustainable community, what is it for? And the, the economists would generally say, well, for economic good, for economic development, to improve GDP. And as has been said in this series of lectures and in many others, the problem with gross domestic product, of course, is that it really doesn't measure what we care about. It's an effective measure of the, of the economy if you want to look at the production and the output. But if you want to measure many of the things that give people satisfaction, that actually help them think about a future that is more uh, appealing or at least can, can actually take people on a different kind of journey, a transformational journey, GDP isn't it. So amongst economists and certainly amongst many of the academic people who are working in this area and doing research, other measures have been put on the table. So there's the social progress index, and this is what's shown in the graph here. There's a sort of grading, as you can see, unsurprisingly, uh, in the way that it's measured between what's happening in Africa and what's happening, for example, in North America and Europe. There's also gross national happiness, and I'm sure many of you will have heard of it. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever completed a gross ha national happiness questionnaire, which is the way that the Americans do it. Um, has anyone ever done one of those? Aha. Uh -huh. So um, it's, it's rather replete in, in questions that are sort of yes and no, and I think you can rattle through it rather quickly. But nevertheless, if you have a kind of community or a population that, that likes online questionnaires, you get a lot of people filling that out. What do the results show? Well, in fact, it demonstrates how, in terms of gross national happiness, much of the happiness from the American respondents has to do with connectivity. It doesn't actually have to do with a lot of consumer goods. So this is rather strange, because when you see people in their global, in their sort of global setting and you see actually what drives much of the economy, it is about consumerism. And yet when people are sitting in front of a screen answering questions about their own happiness, it's rarely about the consumer goods. It's more about loneliness. It's more about who they know, how they interact with people, and so forth. When we come to prosperity, however, it's a very different kind of catch-all. So in the institute where I work, uh, here in the UK, in the University College London, we've kind of created something called the Prosperity Co-Laboratory. It's a sort of collaboration. It's an idea that whenever you go out into the world and you go into different contexts, people will actually measure their prosperity and their ability to thrive against very different kinds of numeraires, different kinds of measurements. And so, for example, we have projects working in Kenya, El Geomaraquet, in the Masai Mara, in Beirut, in London, um, many, many cities, sustainable cities, and where we're engaging citizens and communities in different kinds of science and, and measuring programs. Now, the fascinating thing, if one was to take just three examples, Beirut and London, East London and Nairobi, you would 
pretty much be able to say how different they are. I mean, in East London, you're sitting in a, a setting where you've got a lot of infrastructure, you've got lots of basic services. So when you're looking at sustainability, many of the things you would imagine you can kind of tick the boxes on. When you go to Beirut, of course, completely different story. You have people who have been in many ways under siege for a long time, embattled, different kinds of conflicts and so forth. And of course now, with the Syrian situation, a lot of people sitting on the doorstep who effectively have come from very, very extreme circumstances. And then in Nairobi, okay, becoming a, a sort of a, a middle-income country, but nevertheless, this kind of mixed picture of prosperity for some and a lot of uh, poverty for others. So what we've been doing is looking at taking communities, interviewing them, talking to them, and asking them a very simple question. What does prosperity mean for you? So we're going to work towards sustainable development, but what does prosperity mean for you? And the answers are really quite, well, they're sort of beguiling, but they're also very interesting. So broadly speaking, they kind of come in six kind of classes, let's say, of ideas. So culture and community, and we'll, we'll look at some of those. Healthy people and planet, foundations of prosperity, very important. Opportunities and aspirations, power, voice, and influence. So if we look at foundations, we find that people are talking here in East London about having good, secure, high-quality jobs. They're talking about having affordable housing, energy and transportation. They're also talking about openness and transparency, very important criterion, inclusion and fairness, and local value creation. So when you ask somebody in East London in a kind of different grouping, a different community, these are some of the things that they say, well, without these, we really won't feel at all safe and secure. When you go to ask the same question in Kenya, they do tick some of the foundations, but they're also very, very conscious about the natural world, about the quality of water, of the air they're breathing, um, the fact there's a lot of pollution around, the fact that there's... Uh, that soils are not as productive as they used to be, so it's difficult to grow food and so on. But nevertheless, one of the common features of all of these is the interdependency and the connectedness. So broadly speaking, everybody who sits in a room and talks about prosperity, at one point or another in that, in that process, talks about how important the community is to them how important it is to have strong social relationships, to have a community identity, uh, to have a culture that is linked to that. And at the same time, they will then add things such as safe spaces for adolescents to grow up in, um, to have a healthy childhood, to have obviously affordable health care and medicines. But the one that I think really starts to emerge, quite surprisingly, is over here in power, voice, and influence. So in Kenya, um, when we ran this series of workshops, we had a group of people who came in from a park. And these people are homeless. Uh, so obviously we provide food and so on. And they sit in the workshop. And the first surprise is that, unlike some of the younger people who are invited into the workshop, 
These older people can all write perfectly and beautifully. They can write in English, and they've all got an email. Kind of interesting, because they're all homeless. They live in a park, and the police don't go there. They have got nothing, and yet there they are, and they can basically participate in a way which was really quite surprising to many of the younger people who are sitting in schools, maybe in universities, and so on. So the mornings go on, and we're talking about what does prosperity mean. And nobody mentions money in the bank. Nobody mentions GDP, that's for sure. But what most of them are really, really interested in, and this is in Kenya, is the power of voice, having their voice heard. So being recognized and being able to be in a setting where they can voice their opinions, their ideas, and so on. And so this is really quite remarkable because you have a group of people who I think are more and more, I can see, are very characteristic of those who are often classed as very poor or in the poverty section of any of these reports we read. And they're not necessarily asking about money. They're asking about where will I go to have my voice heard? Where can I be seen? And not only can I vote, but can I actually influence decisions? So the, the basic framework of prosperity is, in a sense, dependent on sustainable development, of course, but it tackles it from a very, very different point of view. And in that sense, it's a far more powerful framework. Um, it's not so obsessed with saying that everybody in the world has to be the same, because if we run this, what I would call the prosperity game in different parts of the world, various elements will come and go, and other things will be more important. For example, accessible banking, uh, lifelong learning, these turn out to be really, really important if you're sitting in Tanzania. So it's, it's kind of something that you can do in any place, in any community. So how can we use this research? How can we start to develop the next step in the transformation from having sustainable development goals, which in a way are we're being encouraged to own them as individuals, but really they're owned by governments, and take on this kind of different, very personal, very community-minded, very family arrangement, which looks to the health and the prosperity of individuals. And that's really where we come back then to twinning and communities, because to have prosperity at the core of what you do, to have prosperity in a sense driving everyday decisions, you have to be able to look your neighbor in the eyes and actually determine whether this transaction is going to be good for both of you. Are you both going to benefit? Because you're going to see each other the next day and the day after and the day after. And, that's long, and that longevity of relationships is something which is very, very, very powerful. So that's very nice. That's all good. And we can all sit you know, and, and talk to people around us. And, and many communities do very well. But if we talk about the future, and we talk about the massive challenges that face us with climate change, the technology issues to do with not just simply energy, but also transportation, trying to remove greenhouse gas emissions or get them down to levels which are at least livable, to potentially divest ourselves of plastics within the economy and so forth. It's very clear that we need to have conversations across the world. And so the next kind of substantive way of moving forward is to use that very digital infrastructure that potentially 
could be a way of taking people out of the workforce, but to use it as a force for good, and to build what we would call then massive open online communities. These are not courses, these are communities. People who are actually talking to each other, able to interact. Um, possibly these will be individuals who would never get the chance to travel, who would ever get the possibility to you know, get the visa and, and get on a an airplane or whatever, or a train, and go and visit but who actually have something genuine that they want to deliver to each other. So, for example, we would like to see that these good practices, the online communities, have about them the ability to identify and analyse the conditions that make one particular community relevant to another. So if you think about where you're living, think about all the conditions that make life um, amenable and make you feel that you're thriving, you can tick off the box and say, OK, well, what's working and what's not working? What are we missing? And it might be that what you're missing, maybe in this country, is um, a way to easily segue from your current energy into renewable energy. And it's not provided, and, and you don't know what to do. Or you might be completely off-grid, maybe sitting up in the highlands or somewhere, and you're thinking about, well, how can I secure my energy supply? How can I secure Wi-Fi? Many, many things that you would really want to have. So then you need to discover communities that are facing the same challenges and see whether they have solutions. And so we can use artificial intelligence to generate conversations across the world for you to find those other communities, those other partners. Then, of course, you need to facilitate the transformations, and that has to be, in a sense, taken on by communities. Because many things, if we leave it to the economic sectors alone and the private sector alone, will not have the sustainability that we really need to see these transformations taking off. So we want to think about what kind of evidence do people need to make the changes? How do we actually mobilize communities so they can talk to each other? And traditionally, it's done through developing personal links from visits and exchange of ideas, uh, from, from exchanges. But we absolutely want to benefit from people who are, say, in, working in China, people who are working in Peru, people who are up in Finland, maybe people in South Africa. On any one day, you want to have that conversation. So as we go forward, building, com building kind of competences, what you understand is that, in a way, governments are helpless to, to engender those conversations because they simply are not in the business of having diverse conversations. What governments need to do is to kind of keep the noise, get the noise down so there's clarity about what the policies are going to have to be to take you to the next stage. And what we're saying is, no, open it all up and allow communities to make those self-determining decisions. So building these massive communities will, of course, require some leadership, but more importantly, it will require a kind of an engagement which means we get over the idea that we can't necessarily speak 140 languages. And there are many ways to do interpretation. So put that to one side. You can have interpreters working. That's not a, that's not a challenge. It's also very important to realize that not everybody has the language of the problem. So you may not be an engineer, but you kind of know that you want to solve something which would possibly require engineering. And that's another kind of language that we learn. And so... In a sense, we have to recognize that whatever the problem is that's facing your community, 
you're going to have multiple entry points. So you will have people who will, let's take, for example, um, when you want to talk about food and energy and water. So you'll have people who will know about all of those issues, but you might also have people who are concerned about jobs. Where are the local jobs? How do we actually build livelihoods into the community? And then you'll have others thinking about social inclusion. Now, it's very, very clear that there aren't single solutions. And from a mathematical point of view or an economics point of view, there's no simple market, there's no simple equation that will take you there. And so what you really need to do is encourage multiple entry points, so expertise coming in in different ways, and thinking about sustainability as being a way to embed people into the landscapes, into ecosystems, in such a way that they can achieve what is considered to be prosperity. So first step, try and understand what the community really means by prosperity, and it's not GDP, it's all those other elements. Come to some kind of an agreement as to what will be the challenges that are absolutely vital to be solved, and then reach out through the kind of mechanisms that we're establishing to see which other communities are facing the same challenges and allow people to come in, in through these different entry points. So that what, we, what we will be doing in the future, and this is where there's a whole different role that, for example, universities will play. So instead of sending someone off to university um, and literally saying at the end of the four years they, they have all the expertise, no, we're going to be saying that throughout life, as everybody knows, you will continue to gather expertise. You will have this kind of lifelong learning, lifelong interaction with, with people, with problems and challenges. But there will always be places that you are an expert. And so helping other communities, in a way, play catch-up means that you might decide that as part of the learning landscape, you could offer a course of, I don't know, three days of all you've learned about the mistakes in accounting. Let's say you're an accountant. And instead of having someone do the entire accounting degree and come out at the end and then have to go and learn all of those mistakes all over again, you would essentially be able to offer that into the, into the, into the learning setting. That's part of the massive online presence. Similarly, you can imagine knowledge exchanges. So with knowledge exchanges, quite extraordinarily, you find that once you place certain kind of words into a conversation in these online communities, it leads to many, many, many solutions coming onto the table. So you don't have to have all the knowledge, but you certainly can be one of the people who can help bring knowledge to the table about solutions and how to solve the challenges. And then you need places where you can go and visit and see, or at least see, um, visually, how did it work? How does it actually happen? And so communities can, be, can offer themselves up as sites of exemplification. Come here and trial it. Um, they can be a place where knowledge is exchanged, and other communities can offer experts into the mix. Now, this all sounds very kind of banal, but it's not happening. And so we're having to think again and again about what is stopping government um, and what is stopping ourselves and communities having these kinds of conversations. And it's partly because of the way in which we actually create knowledge and the way in which we train ourselves and the way in which we have disciplinary expertise, which means sometimes we're afraid to step into another area. Well, there's a kind of movement afoot. 
And here are some examples of what's happening around the world of community twinning. So let me just take you through some of their stories, and you'll begin to get the idea. So on the far left, we have two very, very contrasting areas. One's in Zimbabwe, another one is in the Pacific. And what we have are farmers who are literally struggling with big agribusiness. The one on the top is an example where essentially farmers took on seeds, took on all of the paraphernalia that went along with that, pesticides, um, fertilizers, and so forth. And after a number of years, found that the soils were literally sort of thinning out under their feet and were highly contaminated. So there's not a lot of soil on these islands. And as such, the, 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 the possibility that all of these residues, pesticide residues and something and other things, would be flushed out simply wasn't happening. So what they decided to do was to step back and look in traditional knowledge of what did people do in the past to cater for the fact that, yes, there were now water shortages, which was one of the reasons why they'd gone down the route of bringing in agribusiness to give them seeds that were drought-tolerant. And they found that there was a very strange structure called prithy pits, where water would actually be held in a sort of long-term pattern, even during periods of drought. And slowly, slowly, the farmers built a community across the whole of the archipelagos, such that they divested themselves of, in a sense, commercial seeds, and went back to using different ways of farming and different ways of essentially looking at how they would conserve water and bring up different, uh, different uh, plant forms and different crops. On the other side of the world, in Zimbabwe, the farmers were doing exactly the same thing. And they were struggling with this erratic rain and drought and so on. And you've seen it on the, on the news. In many cases, Zimbabwe is at the far extreme of having massive rainfall and then not enough and so forth. And so they were also struggling, how, you know, how can we do this and so on. And then they discovered in their own traditions that they were also an equivalent to these prithy pits. They were called something else. But what they also were able to discover was that there were varieties of crops that they could use in that setting. Now, out of these two, through a fantastic NGO, a conversation was begun. And the speed of transformation that happened once they had started talking was quite phenomenal. So now you have 8,000 farmers essentially talking to each other and exchanging and moving forward. And now, instead of having to import food to these two places, these farmers in the two countries, in the two areas, the two communities, are now growing enough food to be able to not only feed themselves, but actually to create local livelihoods. And they, actually, they do actually say we would never have been able to think about this different way of working if we hadn't seen it working in another community or another community trying it and trying to experiment. So in a way, they said that the other community gave them the bravery to sort of take on doing something in a very different way. On this side, we have two, again, rather different communities. Here we have a group of ladies who every Wednesday morning go out into the forest of Oro in Benin, and they gather very carefully foods that they have planted, crops they've planted, uh, which are organic crops, of course, and they also gather medicines and so forth. And above that is one of the 4,000 farmers, organic farmers, organic, uh, organopicos, around Havana, 
that feed the entire city of Havana. So you don't have big commercial farms, of course, because of its political background. What you have are 4,000 small organic farms all working together. And so talking between these two groups, it's very clear that Benin and Cuba, or Havana, have decided there's a way in which they can both benefit from the sense of growing, doing companion planting inside forests, but also creating sufficient food in volume coming from many, many small farms. Similar soils, similar kind of problems, similar climate, and so they're now merging their two ways of working. And it has to do with land rights and essentially how do you work that process as a community rather as individual farmers and so forth. So once again, if you visit them, you see that in a space of two or three years, by all measures, they have absolutely improved their prosperity. And then the last one is even kind of more extreme, but, but exciting. So one is the group on the, in the middle is the village of Harbury in, in Warwickshire. A uh, very nice little village, very close to where I am. Uh, the bottom is the village where I live in, um, in the Mara, in Sekanani. See, it's got solar panels. And on the roof of this community hall, they have solar panels. And we're now building a community hall like that one using the same plan. So we've kind of twinned ourselves. But the challenge that we both have, uh, these two communities, is storage. So we looked around and, and you sort of basically look into research and so forth. And what is quite apparent is, of course, storage of energy is the big challenge. Anyway, tucked away up in Finland, uh, there is a community, and I mean a community, which has within it a number of university researchers. And they decided that they wanted to do something as a community of 70,000 people in the, northern, in the uh, western part of Finland that would create not only jobs, but actually put them on the map. And what they decided to do was to invent a new battery. And what's quite remarkable is that they have invented a new battery, and they will bring it to market very soon. But what they wanted, and what they continue to want, are communities that will benefit most from this experiment. So it's not the Elon Musk model, I must admit. It's not that. This is the, the Finnish Harbury, Warwickshire, uh, Masai Mara model, which is communities actually reaching out to each other to say, well, we'll trial it. And, and why is that interesting? Well, because the batteries need to be tested under these kind of extreme conditions, you know, extreme cold up in the Arctic, heat down in the sub-Saharan area where we are in, the, in Sekanani, and then somewhere in the middle in Harbury. So... This is a community network now that's going to be testing ideas. Now, who would have thought, even a couple of years ago, that sitting in the bush in the middle of the Masai Mara, you would have access to really cutting-edge research? So one of the effects that we see already beginning to happen with this community twinning is the acceleration of transformations where you bring knowledge and science and engineering and different ideas really into effect far more quickly than if they were to go through the more, what I would call the more formal economy, which is spin up a business plan, get it into the commercial market, wait for the price to come down so the communities could afford to buy that technology, wait for some kind of financing to happen. In other words, the entire sustainable development goal framework, then you get it in place, oh, and then you can get the technology sent over. 
So this is about risk-taking. It's about putting, putting yourselves into settings where you're clear about the needs and the desires and the requirements to achieve prosperity and have that devised through a community process and then reaching out to find your partners around the world. So it's not that the old model of twinning was bad. It's just that this is much richer and, in a sense, a far more likely to be successful um, uh, approach. So if you were to, let's say today, go home and say, right, I want to do community twinning, well, your first challenge would be to get a whole bunch of people together on a Saturday. So you'd have to go and get the cyclists and all these people around and engage them in coming together. And once you've done that, it really is very important to have the conversation. So you want to build a sustainable community First and foremost, well, what does it look like? What does prosperity actually look like in your community? Is it about education? Is it about jobs? Is it about energy? Is it about community itself having social linkages and many, many things like that? Then, in a way, you need to have data literacy and a kind of open government approach, which is reaching out to communities, finding out what is happening, but more importantly, looking to be able to exchange and share knowledge. And so this is why twinning of communities is quite different than the economic growth model that we have, because in a sense, what makes the economic growth model work is proprietary knowledge. It's not about sharing. Whereas what communities are going to be, in a sense, more and more required is the ability to have open access at their fingertips so they can see and read and understand what is happening in the world where we want to look for solutions. So we, there's a kind of formality about what kind of data do you need, what sort of evidence do you need to persuade individuals or to talk to individuals. But nevertheless, there's a, there's a sort of data-gathering process, which is very nice, and you can have hackathons, you can get kids involved, you can certainly get a lot of people involved in trying to determine what is the pathway for the community. Then you need to build the trust, which of course means that you need to have all generations in the room, understanding exactly what it takes to deliver something not just for next year and maybe two more years down the road, which is what your local MP will do, but actually, no, the community needs to make decisions for the next generation. Because these will be the people that you'll be looking at uh, day in, day out, whereas your MP may come and go. And then, finally, this understanding that moving from the status quo, moving from today's status quo to a different kind of future is pretty scary. And it's what all the time people are saying, oh, I'm going to have to give up so much. Climate change means we're going to have to give this up, give up driving, and so on and so forth. But the evidence does not bear that out. And so when I go back to asking myself and certainly people in my own communities, what do you... We, what do you aspire to? What do you see as part of prosperity? And they say something like um, transport. And the Extinction Rebellion is, is very clear on this. They, they, they see certainly that we should cut out, for example, air travel. My ask is something different. I'm saying, well, if it's that critical, and I believe it is critical for people to meet each other and to be able to have these in-person exchanges, then we should be pushing much, much harder on the ability to produce fuels, which are generated from the biota that we have around us. Not in the kind of mass way that we've done in the past with soya and other kinds of big crops, 
But actually, we already have signs that are creeping to the edge of viability of being able to recycle landfill, being able to reuse many, many of the things that we see as potentially unusable, even you know plastics, but reusing those, to turn those even into aviation fuel. So is it possible that if one would actually step back and talk to all the researchers and say, can we have an aviation fuel that is not fossil fuel based, or at least in the interim we might use waste that could contain some fossil fuel products on the way to producing a fossil free fuel? You can talk to many people who are looking at fuels and they'll say yes. Oh, but it's, you know, it's off into the distance, five, ten years. Well, if we need it, we better start having it now and not in five, ten years' time. So making clear what our priorities are to build sustainable communities is a conversation that essentially everybody has to have. And it's not about having the best science or having knowledge of the language. That's why you have experts and knowledge brokers and people who are reporters. They go out and they interpret. So building communities that will essentially become sustainable and will be prosperous requires that everybody has a role, and that role may differ from time to time, from place to place. So I would like to leave you with this challenge to actually create community twinning, to think about in your own setting what is important, uh, to not sit in your house and, and sort of feel that you actually are isolated, um, to do what we see in East London, where vast, vast numbers of people are still malnourished, live in terrible quality of housing, and yet what they value the most is the fact that the community itself is there. So I shall leave you with that. I hope that you have found your community as I've been talking tonight, thinking about who and what you need and who you might want to connect with. And uh, I will make an offer, probably rather unjudicious, that if you want to connect your community with others around the world, then you should contact me and my fellow colleagues in the Institute for Global Prosperity, and we will start the conversation with your communities. Thank you.